Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. I hope all of you had a very good Thanksgiving. I know I certainly did. It was why I was not producing any new shows for the last two weeks. Not only was I didn't, did I not get to see very many new films, I was also out of town. But I had a very good Thanksgiving, and I hope all of you did as well. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to take another two-week hiatus, and the reason for that is because it's the holiday season. I'm very excited for that, uh, spending some time with my loved ones, as well as uh, getting out of town for a little while. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season as well. I'll save those formalities until my last show of 2022, which will be in a couple of weeks, but this one is not it. For this show, I will be reviewing four brand new movies, or at least movies that have come out within the last couple of weeks. It's one of those instances where there are more new films out there than I'm probably going to have time to review on this show. But I'm getting to as many as I could, and I'm trying to get all the brand new ones in as quickly as possible. So the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a movie that's called Violent Night. This is a movie that premiered at the New York Comic Con on October 7th, 2022, and was released in theaters nationwide on December 2nd, 2022. And it's a little late for a Christmas-themed movie to be released in theaters, because usually the Christmas-themed movies are released in November around or right before Thanksgiving. But Violent Night is a movie that just doesn't care. That's probably one of its biggest assets as a film. Violent Night is directed by Tommy Workola, who has had extensive experience as a writer and as a director over the last couple of years. The last film he directed before Violent Night was a movie called The Trip, which I haven't seen. It stars uh, Nomi Rapace and Aksen Henny. Uh, Axel Henny, excuse me. So if you haven't heard of it either, I don't entirely blame you. But Violent Night is not... Tommy Workola's feature film debut, but it's probably his American breakthrough as a director. And this movie sounds absolutely stupid on paper, but somehow it works. Uh, I, I think it's probably because of the acting involved by all the major actors, as well as it's just unabashed, unapologetic violence. But here's the the synopsis of the film. When a group of mercenaries attack the estate of a wealthy family, Santa Claus must step in to save the day and Christmas. And in this movie, David Harbour, best known for playing the sheriff on Stranger Things, but he's been in a couple of other movies as well. Probably his least ceremonious one was the remake and attempted franchise reboot of Hellboy, which was not very critically lauded. In fact, some critics, not me, but other people added it to the worst movie of of the year it came out, 2018. But I think David Harbour did his best. And surprisingly enough, he does not play somebody who plays Santa Claus at a shopping mall or somebody who dresses up at Santa to collect money for the Salvation Army. Not like Billy Bob Thornton in Bad Santa, the latter of whom was a shopping mall Santa who had nefarious wishes and also just didn't really care. No, David Harbour is alcoholic in this film, but he plays the real Santa Claus. But rest assured, the Rankin-Bass version of Santa Claus that you see in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Santa Claus is Coming to Town, i.e. the very candy-coated Santa Claus, David Harbour is not, but he is the real Santa Claus. He has the eight reindeer, the sleigh, he has the job to do on Christmas Eve, and so on. But anyway, as he is delivering presents at the house of a wealthy older woman by the name of Gertrude Lightstone, played by Beverly D'Angelo, who is also no stranger to cynical Christmas movies. She's in one that's sort of a modern Christmas classic these days. Christmas Vacation, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, as he is delivering presents to her house, 
there is a group of mercenaries led by somebody by the name of Scrooge, or at least somebody who calls himself codenamed Scrooge, and he's played by John Leguizamo. His mission is very simple. Hold Gertrude Lightstone's family hostage, rob them of $300 million, and go away by any means necessary, but definitely get the $300 million. But Santa Claus, David Harbour's character, is delivering presents and finds himself less in the position of somebody who brings joy to millions of children all over the earth and a little bit more like John McClane from Die Hard. So as as stupid as this sounds, Violent Night is basically Die Hard with Santa Claus. And as I said, on paper, this premise sounds incredibly stupid. But somehow this movie works, and I think it works mainly because of the film's unapologetic violence. It's not that Santa Claus gets the best out of this team of mercenaries who's trying to rob this wealthy woman and her dysfunctional, spoiled family of her estate money. It's the fact that Santa Claus just up and kills them. And... It might sound stupid on paper, it might sound stupid as I am describing it, but it works because it just doesn't care as a film. And it actually tells a viable, good story while it is while Santa Claus is up there uh, killing people and evading this group of um, mercenaries. I shouldn't say mercenaries. These group of assassins who are just trying to take the money and run, but are not afraid to kill people on their way to getting these riches. So there are some subplots in the story of of this family that is trying to be on the good side of their uh, wealthy grandmother, but but not trying to take full advantage of her, while at the same time also trying to get this this group to take their guns off them as quickly as possible. There are also some very uh, good characters in this film, including there's a young girl whose name is Trudy Lightstone, who's played by Leah Brady, who is the only one in the house who believes in Santa Claus, which ends up being the family's saving grace sort of vicariously. And I could go on about this uh, film being as as fun as it is. It is, rest assured, not for children, although children will probably want to see this film. It earns its R rating, but it's definitely not the first film that's very cynical of Christmas, and not to mention, it's not the first film to take a look at the downside of Christmas and go balls to the wall with violence. But... It probably is the best, and it probably won't be the last either, but for this movie, for what it was, I absolutely enjoyed it. I thought the violence was very well choreographed, and a lot of times, even though it was gruesome and it seemed to be very extreme at times, actually, take that back, it was very extreme at times, I really enjoyed this film. And also, there is a little bit of heart that's put into the film towards the very end, which I think in the hands of many other filmmakers would have been contrived and would have made the movie uneven. But to me, it worked. There was the right amount of drama added with the right amount of heart, not to mention the right amount of Christmas magic to maybe not be for kids, but be right for this movie. And Violent Night for that reason was a very big surprise to me. It wasn't you know, wall-to-wall cuteness, but it added the right amount of cuteness in there, not to mention David Harbour not only played a really good alternative Santa Claus, he also played a very good action movie protagonist, and it probably won't be his last time playing this, but anybody who hated the Hellboy movie that he did is well within their right to hate that movie, but I think for this, David Harbour redeems himself, which is why I give Violent Night my rating of a very surprising knockout. It is certainly a film for people who 
hate Christmas, but it's also has something in it for people who love Christmas as well. And it takes a, a premise that sounds absolutely stupid and somehow makes it work. It was a very surprising film for me and I surprisingly loved it. And I don't say this about many films, let alone many Christmas films, but it's probably a movie I will be watching again next year. If only to show my friends and family how fun as well as how gruesome the movie actually is. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Strange World. This is a film that is actually a Disney animated feature, not a Disney Pixar animated feature, but it is the 61st animated film produced by the studio. It was co-directed by Don Hall and Ki Nien. And this is actually Kenyan's debut as a director. She's written a number of screenplays before, not just for Disney, but the film that she actually, for which she wrote the screenplay for Disney was Raya and the Last Dragon, which is a film, to be honest with you, I didn't actually get to see. It was released last year. It was released exclusively on Disney+. Plus. It was one of those Disney Plus premium movies where you had to pay $30 to see it. For that reason, I didn't see it. And I just sort of moved on with seeing other films. But this is actually the movie Strange World based on an original story and screenplay by Qin Yen. And it is a film that is about a legendary explorer by the name of Clades, um, who is the patriarch of a family of explorers who whose differences threaten to topple their latest and most crucial mission. Let me be a little bit more specific as to what that mission is. You're introduced to the Clades family, including the patriarch of the family, who is a man's man by the name of Jaeger Clade, who is voiced in this movie by Dennis Quaid. He is an explorer through and through, and he has a son by the name of Searcher, who's voiced by Jake Gyllenhaal. Jaeger wants to explore whatever he can see, what he can live to see. And Searcher, despite the name his father gave him, wants to put down roots, literally and figuratively. And he, di he discovers a source of electricity that is plant-powered that he can grow at his, uh, at his farm and he also makes a very good profit from growing this powered plant, uh, so to speak. And he eventually grows up, settles down, gets married to Meridian Clade, who's voiced by Gabrielle Union. And together they have a young son named Ethan Clade, who's voiced by Jaboki, Jaboki Young White. And Jaboki Young White is distinctive in the sense that not only is he the first biracial protagonist in a Disney film or in a Disney animated film, but he's also the first gay protagonist here. So automatically a lot of Fox news conservatives are ripping this film for being too woke and they don't have a point in that regard. However, I do think that the writers of this film were a little bit more concerned about getting the characters to be diverse and not so much for being well-developed. And Strange World is an original story. And actually, I should go on a little bit more with the, the story before I give you a little bit uh, more of a background about what I liked and what I didn't like about this movie. So eventually, Searcher goes on a very reluctant journey with uh, her, his father's... Um, former teammate Callisto Mal, who's voiced by Lucy Liu, because Callisto finds that there is there are 
bugs that are destroying the crop that creates this electricity for the town in which Searcher and his family live. So Searcher is very reluctant to go on this journey, but his son Ethan, as you might expect, wants to be an explorer and doesn't want to follow in his father's footsteps. He wants to follow in his grandfather's footsteps. So they journey to the center of the earth to find this undiscovered land that is quite magical. And the filmmakers put in a lot more effort to make this land as vast and as magical as they could, but I think that the characters could have been a bit more developed. And plus, I think that once you find that Searcher doesn't want to do what his father Jaeger does, and then Ethan doesn't want to do what his father Searcher does, You've seen this kind of dynamic played out before where there is a dysfunctional relationship between father and son and then father and son where you kind of know that one of the sons is going to rebel against his father, not only by sneaking onto this journey where he's not supposed to be and also getting into that argument in the end where he says, you don't ask me what I want. It's something that I've seen several times before and Honestly, Jake Gyllenhaal's character of Searcher is kind of bland and reminded me actually a bit of the character of Randy Marsh from South Park, which is which is what I don't think Disney wants to make the comparison in in terms of characters when putting this movie out. I don't think that kids who see this movie will get the reference, but adults will certainly see the comparison. And I don't think that Jake Gyllenhaal added a lot of dimension to his character. I also think that Dennis Quaid also may have been miscast as the grandfather Jaeger. I I would have expected a voice actor like Jim Cummings, who's, who's done these kinds of characters before, in fact, has done characters who have looked like the character of Jaeger Clade before. And I do not go against Disney or or the writer and co-director Keen Yen for adding a diverse cast in here. That's probably what I liked about it the most. But I think that the focus was more on the diverse characters than it was on actually developing them into original characters or characters that have a bit more nuance than you might expect. I did, however, like the actual strange world in here, and I also liked the fact that there were no villains. It just seemed like everyone here was very well-intentioned. And that may not be to everyone's suiting who wants to see a Disney film, and this may be a film that takes more narrative risks than any film since 2002's Treasure Planet, which may be to its detriment financially, but I liked the film. I didn't love it, which is why I give strange world my rating of a checkout. I do think that it's lack of developing characters makes it a bit more towards the more forgettable Disney animated features like treasure planet, as I mentioned, and maybe even the black cauldron, but I don't think this is going to set Disney back any financially. I think it will recover when it makes its next film. I just think that if they had developed a bit more of the character development, as well as adding more to the story that was a bit more unpredictable, like the world in which these explorers visit, I think that would have put Strange World on a bit better footing in terms of its storytelling. But as it is, it's an okay film, just not great. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is She Said. This is a biographical drama film that is not only based on a true story, but also based on a book of the same name written by Jody Cantor and Megan Twohey. 
both of whom were reporters, actually are reporters for the New York Times. And what did she actually say? Well, it's a movie about their discoveries about the sexual assault allegations by Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, who until 2017 was not only one of the most influential people in Hollywood, he was also one of the most influential people in the world. And the reporting that Jody Cantor and Megan Twohey did made Harvey Weinstein from one of the most powerful figures who didn't hold office into probably one of the most reviled and resented figures, and not undeservingly. She said is directed by Maria Schrader, who's had extensive acting and uh, screenwriting experience before. In terms of being a director, she's directed several movies that have been released primarily in her native Germany. But this is her debut as a feature film director in America, or at least it's her breakthrough as a director. But she is the winner of a primetime Emmy for Outstanding Director for a Limited Series, Movie, or Dramatic Series, for which she directed the limited miniseries Unorthodox, which you can find actually on Netflix. It premiered there on March 26th after the uh, pandemic hit and everybody was watching Netflix. But Unorthodox is a film that, or rather a limited series that I missed, but I'd really like to see it now, especially based on her uh, outstanding directorial effort with She Said. So as I said, this movie details New York Times reporters Jody Cantor and Megan Twohey as they break one of the most important stories in a generation, a story that helped ignite a movement and shattered decades of silence around the subject of sexual assault in Hollywood. And Megan Twohey in this film is played by Carrie Mulligan, and Jody Cantor is played by Zoe Kazan. And Carrie Mulligan has so far been nominated twice for Best Actress in a Leading Role, and Zoe Kazan has had extensive experience as an actress in some of these big movies, but she hasn't been nominated yet. This movie may change that, but the two of them are actually not the only ones who act well in this film. There are also great supporting performances in this film by Patricia Clarkson, who plays one of the New York Times editors, Rebecca Corbett. Also, Andre Brower, who plays Dean Baquette, who, or maybe Dean Baquet, I'm not sure how that name is pronounced, but he's also a real figure who not only was an influential editor at the New York Times, he also knew Harvey Weinstein personally. And there are various scenes in this movie where he's speaking with Harvey Weinstein over the phone, and also his allegiance may be at first split between his duty as a journalist as well as his friendship with Harvey Weinstein, but it plays out in a, in a way you might not expect. Also, there are very good support, supporting performances here by the likes of women who are in smaller roles, such as Jennifer L., who plays Laura Madden, and Rowena Chu, excuse me, uh, Angela Yo, who plays Rowena Chu. <clears throat> and these names might not be as familiar to modern news, uh, people who pay attention to the news, as Rose McGowan, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Ashley Judd, who were some of the more prominent A-list or former A-list names who called out Harvey Weinstein for his sexual misconduct allegations. But as this movie details, they may not have been the catalyst for really bringing down Harvey Weinstein and then starting a pattern of other high-profile people, not only in Hollywood, but in other high-profile industries as well as towns, including New York City itself. But this movie focuses primarily on Harvey Weinstein and his crimes as they are discovered through secondhand sources by Jody Cantor and Megan Twohey, as well as how they are able to uncover Harvey Weinstein's crimes and misdemeanors while going on with their lives as well. It is certainly a 
very solid journalism film. I wouldn't say it is as good as All the President's Men or the the other <laughs> film that detailed um, the journalistic exploits of the Boston Globe's Spotlight team. And the name of that film is Spotlight, of course, which, by the way, won Best Picture in 2016. And what's very ironic about the comparisons between She Said and Spotlight is the fact that at the 2016 Oscars, Michelle Obama was actually tapped to have the envelope and read the Best Picture winner, which happened to be Spotlight. And who arranged to have Michelle Obama, who was First Lady of the United States at the time, read the Best Picture winner? You guessed it, Harvey Weinstein. It's it's an irony that is not touched upon in this film, but I just wanted to say it for uh, what it's worth, that that's the amount of influence that Harvey Weinstein had probably on both sides of the political spectrum. But he fit in very well in a town that is largely liberal, especially amongst the bourgeoisie. But that did not excuse his crimes and misdemeanors. And Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey did a, an amazing job in real life with, with their investigative skills. And Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan anchor this film very well. It may not be up to the narrative grit of Spotlight or All the President's Men, and I think it does get a bit meddled into the facts and maybe not the drama behind the facts as much. For example, there there are times where you learn about some of the high-profile accusers of Harvey Weinstein, and Ashley Judd actually makes an appearance as herself in this film. And there are moments where Rose McGowan is heard on, on the phone, and Rose McGowan actually doesn't provide her own voice. Her voice is provided by Kaylee McQuayle. But there's also another instance where Megan Twoey and Joey, Jody Cantor actually visit Gwyneth Paltrow at her house, does Gwyneth Paltrow appear as herself? She does not. And I think that was a missed opportunity. If Gwyneth Paltrow either didn't want to be in this film or didn't have the time to be in this film, that would have been one thing. But they shouldn't have hinted at that point. It probably should have been one of those tidbits that you would read on IMDb as a piece of trivia. But when they get into the interviewing some of the lower-profile people, especially Laura Madden, who at one point worked under Harvey Weinstein but really had nothing to lose from his intimidation because she was actually undergoing cancer treatment and could have died, but before she potentially died, she had to reveal the truth. I think if the movie had gone with that sort of narrative, I think that it would have been a stronger film uh, rather than hinting at A-list talent to contribute to this film that, that they ultimately couldn't deliver. Does that mean that I don't like the film? Absolutely not. I think that Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan anchored this film incredibly well. And also, I think when it trusts its storytelling instincts, it does well for what it is. But I still give She Said my rating of a marginal knockout because I do think that when the film works in terms of its journalistic integrity, it really works. And it, it just sort of loses that instinct in, in terms of storytelling somewhere in the middle. But it doesn't mean that... I, I, I'm just saying that by margins, it, it it's not quite as good as... Spotlight or All the President's Men, but I think it still should be one of those films that is shown to potential journalism students to show that not everyone is immune from accountability. And she said shows that I, I think probably for moviegoers that accountability is what make what makes journalism as well as democracy thrive and the people who are not canceled for their crimes and misdemeanors probably should be canceled for 
if they're canceled for the right reasons. But I think she said is a great film for potential journalism students, as well as people who love to see good, thrilling movies about journalism. But it's just not up to that high standard that Spotlight and All the President's Men set. But I still enjoyed it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is not technically a movie, but it is a limited documentary series that is now available for streaming on Netflix and has been since November 17th, 2022. The limited docuseries is known as Pepsi, Where's My Jet? And it tells the true story about the story that ultimately became the court case Leonard versus PepsiCo Incorporated, which was a case that came to court or to district court in 1999 and started from a 1995 commercial that Pepsi aired where they were advertising not only Pepsi itself, but also their loyalty program, which was known as Pepsi Points. And I remember in 1995 and 1996 trying to capitalize upon Pepsi points as best I could. I didn't drink a ton of Pepsi or Mountain Dew, or at least compared to some other people, but I did collect enough points to get me a Pepsi and Mountain Dew t-shirt. That was the best I could do. The thought of getting the leather jacket um, that... PepsiCo also had in their loyalty program was for me a pipe dream, but there was a young man who was, who, who lived in Wisconsin, whose name was John Leonard, who tried to get a Harrier jet that Pepsi very facetiously put on one of their commercials, which was a very successful commercial. And they claimed that to get the Harrier jet, you would have to save up 700, excuse me, 7 million Pepsi points. And John Leonard at the time was a 21-year-old business student who was living with his parents and going to school in addition to working part-time. And when he saw the Pepsi commercial where Pepsi promised 7 million Pepsi points to get an AV8 Harrier 2 jet, which no civilian could legally own, he jumped upon the opportunity because he saw through his eagle eye that there was no disclaimer underneath that said that Pepsi was not entitled to give anyone who saved up 7 million Pepsi points that Harrier jet. And I did hear about this case sort of secondhand. I didn't watch the news or read the newspaper or get the whole story about it until I saw this docuseries. And I remember hearing about that before, and I made the initial assumption that the person who saved up these Pepsi points was this kind of Veruca Salt-level character who just got their rich parents to rent a warehouse and collect all these Pepsi points, probably without drinking the Pepsi itself, because I think to get 7 million Pepsi points and to get the Pepsi or Mountain Dew required to get these Pepsi points, you would drink Pepsi that would, within a week, give you diabetes if you were committed to drinking that amount of soda, which no mortal person should ever drink. But I thought it was somebody who was very wealthy and had the means to get these Pepsi points who would probably be better off just buying the Harrier jet for themselves. 
But as it turns out, it was a lot more complicated and a lot more credibly ambitious than that because John Leonard actually found a way to get the Pepsi points without actually buying, let alone drinking the Pepsi. And it turns out that at the time, you could, rather than purchasing Pepsi itself, i.e. no purchase necessary, you could pay 10 you could pay Pepsi 10 cents per Pepsi point to get what you wanted. So if a leather jacket cost 1,200 Pepsi points, you could pay Pepsi $120 and they would deliver you that leather jacket. And if I had read the fine details when I was 13 years old and this Pepsi uh, campaign was catching fire, I would have most certainly gotten that leather jacket. Granted, I would have had to beg my parents for $120 because I was 13 and wasn't legally able to work and I still had to go to school and all, but I would have seen that as an opportunity rather than buying Pepsi bottle after Pepsi bottle. And I like Pepsi and I liked Mountain Dew at the time, although now I avoid that stuff like the plague because I just don't drink soda anymore in general. But I liked how this movie, or rather this limited docuseries, told the story. And it was told from the perspective of John Leonard, who's now in his late 40s. And it also shows the steps he took to get this Harrier jet, and also the way that Pepsi, with its team of lawyers, tried to backtrack John Leonard getting this Harrier jet, or the monetary equivalent of it with the $7,000 that he actually paid Pepsi to get this jet, which is worth $32 million. And even though it is a David and Goliath story, it doesn't quite end the way you expect it to end, it's still a very, very fascinating story. And it tells the story about everyone who is involved with it, not just John Leonard, but also somebody who was an acquaintance of his who likes to get in on some of these deals as well as a very mutual friend and political strategist whose name you might recognize Michael Avenatti and for those of you who don't quite remember Michael Avenatti being in the news he's not only a, a former attorney as well as a rebel rouser but he also represented who who would go on to represent adult film actress Stormy Daniels and her lawsuits against then-U.S. President Donald Trump in which he defrauded Stormy Daniels in what became ultimately an unsuccessful lawsuit. This was the lawsuit that was supposed to bring Donald Trump down, but it didn't. Many other things brought Donald Trump down, but not probably as down as Donald Trump deserved, but that is, of course, another story. But Michael Avenatti jumped in on this PepsiCo versus uh, Leonard versus PepsiCo case and was sometimes ambitious to a fault in making this case well-known and also getting John Leonard his compensation that this movie wants to make the case that he so deserved. And... This docuseries is in four parts. Its total running time is two hours, 37 minutes. And it's the last part of this docuseries, the fourth part, where the movie, or rather the docuseries, begins to take shortcuts. And there are there's a part in real life where John Leonard and Michael Avenatti part ways, but the docuseries is not very clear in explaining why that is. And it's also not particularly clear about why he partnered again with the friend of his who funded him the $70,000 to get the Harrier jet, Todd Hoffman. But it just kind of says that he decided not to go with Michael Avenatti and went with Todd Hoffman instead. I'm not going to tell you about the details about the case Leonard versus PepsiCo. That's detailed here in the movie very well. But the movie begins to lose its narrative uh, footing from there. But with that said, it does have some very good interview footage with John Leonard, Todd Hoffman, Michael Avenatti, as well as some of the lawyers for Pepsi, in addition to some very prominent 
people who were the literal face of Pepsi, like Cindy Crawford, for example. But it brings you back to how influential Pepsi was as a brand, as a company, and in the 90s as an advertising juggernaut. Because Pepsi, I think, Coca-Cola had the extensive advertising that it did. It was, after all, the first and the most successful cola distributors. But Pepsi was, for a while, the scrappy underdog who began the cola wars in the early 80s, and they did it by having celebrities as well as the most clever advertising since Budweiser to sell their soft drinks. So, Pepsi and Coke had a viable war going on, which is still continuing on to this day. But Pepsi had the sex appeal that Coca-Cola didn't quite have. Coca-Cola may have had the extensive advertising and some very catchy jingles like Always Coca-Cola, which is the jingle in the 90s that brought them to the forefront and gave Coca-Cola the comeback that they had. But Pepsi also kind of became... The face of the evil corporation when John Leonard wasn't given the jet that he promised. And when you're going along with the first three-thirds of Pepsi, Where My Jet, Where's My Jet, it's very intriguing how this movie tells the story about what prompted him to actually have the audacity to raise the funds to get the points to get the jet. But it also makes a very good point about how Pepsi should have dotted its I's and crossed its T's more than it ultimately did. Because if it doesn't prom- if it doesn't say anything in the fine print, the way the lawsuits go these days, you actually have a case. And I think that's a demonstration that Pepsi Wears My Jet displays very well. And it's good that this was a docuseries, and it's also a very fun docuseries, not to mention that it makes the most out of both archive footage at the time, as well as a a really good storytelling technique where it shows John Leonard as a young man and has an actor, Michael Davis, who plays almost an uncanny resemblance of a young man in the 90s, not to mention one who is uncannily resembling John Leonard when he was a young man. So Pepsi Where's My Jet is not a perfect docuseries, But it's a fun one, and it gets my rating of a checkout. It certainly is a Davy and Goliath, excuse me, not Davy and Goliath, David and Goliath story. But does it end up being the end result of the David and Goliath story from the Bible? I'm not going to tell you, but regardless of how it ends, Pepsi Where's My Jet is not a perfect docuseries, but it does make for a really good ride, if not in the Harrier jet that was promised. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and, if I have time, on streaming for the week of December 5th through December 9th, 2022. And there aren't very many movies that are going to be released in theaters. In fact, there are only going to be a handful of films. But I'll get to them as quickly as I can, given the time that I have. Unfortunately, I don't have enough time to get into the movies that are subject to being released on streaming for the week of December 5th through December 9th, 2022. But if I have time, I'll give it my best shot. But there are two movies that are actually going to be released on December 8th, 2022. And the first movie is going to be a horror film that is known as Float. And this is a film that is directed by Zach Locke, who is an American director, 
but the actors who are in this movie are not very familiar to me. So the float, or actually the movie is called Hashtag Float, or at least that's its title on its advertising, but it's a movie about a vlogger and her crew who embark on their annual river float to commemorate the untimely loss of their friend. And when they're on this float, they're plunged into a life-and-death battle with a mysterious local, a sinister paranormal force, and their own fears. The movie stars Scarlett Spurdudo, Kayla Coleman, excuse me, Kaya Coleman, Kate Mayhew, and Grant Morningstar. Not uh, actors with which I'm entirely familiar. Their faces look familiar, but... This movie looks interesting. I don't know if it's going to be playing in a theater near me, but if it's but if it does and I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on December 8th, Thursday, 2022, is a movie that's called Dreams of Darkness. This is a film that is a horror thriller. And devastated by the disappearance of his wife, Derek Fabry enters a nightmarish world of the occult erotic evil, and supernatural seduction as he tries to unravel the mystery of her vanishing. This is also a movie with a number of actors with whom I'm not familiar. They include Miles John Dalton, Pia Bertucci, Renee Domenz, and Libby Amato. If those names are familiar to you, then congratulations. The movie is directed by Nikolai Malden, with whom I'm also not familiar. And Dreams of Darkness sounds a bit lo- a bit cheesy, but if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. On December 9th, 2022, there are three major films that are coming out in theaters. One is a movie I've been looking forward to seeing for quite some time, i.e. over a year. And this is a movie called The Whale. And The Whale is a movie that stars Brendan Fraser, who's an actor who we haven't heard from for quite some time. And he actually gained a ton of weight to, oh, um, yeah, he actually did gain some weight, but he also, for some reason, had um, makeup um, fitted on him that makes him look like a 300-pound man. So this is not the Brendan Fraser that you're familiar with in movies like Encino Man and the Mummy series. But in this movie, Brendan Fraser plays a reclusive English teacher by the name of Charlie who attempts to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter who's played in this movie by Sadie Sink. The movie also stars Ty Simpkins, Hong Chow, and Samantha Morton. And Samantha Morton actually had a supporting role, albeit a brief supporting role, in the movie She Said, which I reviewed earlier on this show. So this movie looks like Oscar bait. Whether or not it deserves that Oscar has yet to be seen. But the fact that Brendan Fraser went through this body transformation is certainly something that's going to get Oscar voters' attention. And already, this film, which premiered at the 79th Venice International Film Festival on September 4th, 2022, has gotten great reviews so far. But I don't know how this movie's going to be. It, it may have gotten great reviews from other critics, but sometimes there have been movies that have gotten great reviews that I have disliked. One of such movie recently is Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. But that's another story. But The Whale is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on December 9th, 2022, is a movie that's called Spoiler Alert. And this is a movie I'll have to detail, despite Words on Film's policy about no spoilers. I'm kidding, of course, but this is the story of Michael Ocilio and Kit Cowan's relationship, i.e. their gay men, that takes a tragic turn when Cohen is diagnosed with terminal cancer. Now, this movie is directed by Michael Showalter, who is a very good comedic actor who's been in such films as Wet Hot American Summer and The Bouncer. But in terms of his directorial efforts, he's actually done some very good 
uh, directorial films, including last year's The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which earned Jessica Chastain a very well-deserved Academy Award for Best Actress. And she all, and he also directed Hello, My Name is Doris, which starred Sally Field, which is a film that didn't do especially well, but it's a film that's developed a cult following. So spoiler alert looks a bit more serious than Hello, My Name is Doris, or even um, the film that I just mentioned, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And it takes place during Christmas as well. But a wall-to-wall cute Christmas movie, this movie is not. But it's probably not as gruesome as... Violent Night either, but spoiler alert is a film that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. And I forgot to mention this, but the actors in the film include Jim Parsons and Ben Aldridge, who play the Michael Auxilio and Kit Cowan couple. Also starring in this movie is Sally Field, who plays Kit Cohen's mother. So this should be a very interesting film. Is it going to be Oscar worthy? I don't know, but I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And the final film that is subject to being released in theaters on December 9th is a film that's called Empire of Light. This is a film that is about, that's a drama about the power of human connection during turbulent times. It's set in an English coastal town in the early 1980s. And this film was written and directed by Sam Mendes, who brought us such films as American Beauty and 1917, which came out three years ago, which I still think should have won Best Picture, but it lost Best Picture over Parasite. And the reason that I think it should have won Best Picture is because it's a better film than American Beauty, which won Best Picture, and it also had a very continuous shot. In other words, it had skillful editing and looked like it was filmed on two continuous shots, kind of like Birdman, which also won Best Picture. Yet 1917 did not win Best Picture. Go figure. But anyway, Empire of Light is a film that stars Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth. A lot of great actors there, in addition to Toby Jones. That's another great actor I should throw in there as well. So Empire of Light looks like another Oscar-worthy film. Will it be an Oscar-worthy film, or will it be Oscar bait? I don't know. But I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But the fact that it's written and directed by Sam Mendes is very, very promising in and of itself. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.